Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today uh, I would like to talk about a theme uh, as a follow-up uh, to the last two shows. If you listen to the last show, uh, we talk, talked about some of my predictions here for the year to come, 23. And the show before that was a summary of uh, 22. I always do those two shows at the end of the year. Uh, I want to follow up with a third related show here today, which is um, on the long-term trends of uh, neoliberal-era capitalism, U.S. and global, and uh, how these long-term trends are impacting the present and the future. Uh, this is a presentation uh, that I also gave to a conference, uh, international conference last week in Germany. There was a 28th annual Rosa Luxemburg conference uh, on uh, this particular topic. I will be posting on my blog, jackrasmus.com, later today, a text version of uh, this presentation on the long-term trends of neoliberal capitalism uh, and the contradictions which are growing as a result of those long-term trends. Okay, so that's the topic of the show here uh, today. Uh, but before I do that, just a comment on a couple of events of the day here that are of interest. One, of course, is this debt ceiling political theater going on in Congress, right? Uh, let me put that in context to better uh, understand it. Uh, first of all, uh, the debt ceiling and all the talk about, uh, you know, the economy is going to crash if they don't agree to it. Um, spin. Uh, if the U.S., like any other company uh, or individual, does not pay the principal and interest on its debt, and that's what this is about, to raise it so the government can uh, print some more money to pay its bills, right? If it fails to do this, it, it uh, falls into what's called default. Default is simply you're not able to make the principal and interest payments on your debt. That's a default. But, you know, uh, a default declaration uh, is not uh, imminent here. Uh, in fact, uh, there's lots of negotiations that go on, uh, and it is going to go on for probably for weeks. Uh, if any, quote, announcement of default occurs, it won't be until spring. Uh, and uh, just because you declare a default or announce a default doesn't mean you're in default. No. All it means is that uh, uh, you may not be able to make the principal interest payments and you have a 30-day grace period to do it. So the initial announcement of default, which is months away, because the Treasury has a lot of funds squirreled away elsewhere it can use to pay its bills. But let's say uh, it gets to a point of default and it announces a default. Uh, that means you've got 30 days to come up with the money. Uh, and if you don't come up with it in 30 days, uh, then you enter a new phase of default. Uh, and you actually are technically in default, not an announcement. Uh, and then you have uh, another grace period. I forget whether it's 30 or 60 days to actually make the payment. So that's the way default works, you see. And that's the way it works for corporations or individuals. Well, not so much individuals, but corporations. You have this 30, 60, 90-day uh, 
period to actually pay. Uh, and that's after uh, the months of negotiations, if it goes that far, and it won't, uh, in which the Treasury uh, pulls money out of uh, uh, other government accounts to pay its debt holders, which are mostly uh, corporations and investors, by the way. Uh, so uh, that's the reality of default. Now, another comment about this default negotiations, debt limit negotiations, uh, that's not the real negotiation. The real negotiation going on behind the scene is between the two parties is how much will they agree to cut social programs, especially Social Security. That's the real discussion going on behind the debt limit, you see. If they come to an agreement on that, then the Republicans fall in line and agree to raise the debt limit in exchange for making these cuts. Okay. And what are the cuts? Well, the real topic here is uh, Social Security Medicare. That's the, the big discretionary spending thing that they can attack. Uh, they're not going to attack uh, defense and war spending. Uh, no, Congress, uh, despite the debt ceiling, uh, has increased to a $79 billion increase in the Pentagon budget alone. Yeah. Uh, in his budget proposal, Biden has asked, asked for $773 billion for the Pentagon. Well, Congress already raised it to $853 billion, uh, over and above what he asked for. Well, this is for the war in Ukraine. Forty-five billion of that seventy-nine billion will go to for the war in Ukraine, and the rest will probably go to preparing for war with China. Okay. And uh, by the way, New York Times said, "Oh, that's just the beginning. Before the year is over, even more is going to be allocated." Uh, so, uh, you know, the war in defense spending is running amok accelerating, and they're talking about the debt limit, and they're talking about taking it away from grandma and grandpa to pay uh, for the war corporation's uh, accelerated production of uh, uh, war goods for Ukraine and other benefits for Ukraine as well. Uh, okay, so that's the interesting thing about attacking Social Security. How are they going to attack Social Security? Well, well they're going to raise the, minimum, uh, the retirement age to 70 yeah, 70. By the way, in contrast, the French workers and the unions are all out on the street right now over the government proposal there to raise Social Security from 62 to 64. Here they want to raise it to 70 and probably eliminate early Social Security access and probably gut the hell out of uh, uh, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, and probably raise your uh, your uh, uh, deductibles, monthly deductibles here for uh, Medicare. Uh, that's what they're going to do. That's what the debate is really going on between the two wings of the corporate party of America, a.k.a. Republicans and Timocrats, uh, in Congress. That's what they're really discussing. When they come to an agreement on that, then you'll see the debt limit raised. Okay, so that's just a little bit of uh, what's going on uh, politically here right now. Uh, what's also going on is the tech companies are laying off. Well, they announced layoffs, you see. They haven't actually laid off because people get at least a month's severance, uh, and uh, th those people haven't uh, in, even applied for unemployment insurance yet. That will hit in February. We'll see a surge in unemployment claims in February. Uh, but tech is laying off. They're battening down the hatches because they all know recession is going to deepen here in the next six months. Uh, and at the same time, the Fed keeps raising rates. 
which is going to ensure that it's going to deepen. They know that. They know it's coming. Even even business uh, pundits know it's coming. Uh, I mean, when it gets down to that level, you really know it's coming. <laughs> so uh, uh, they're preparing. They're battening down the hatches and preparing, laying off and, you know, uh, tightening up uh, their costs, et cetera. Uh, that's already going on in the housing sector. And typically the way recessions spill over in the goods production is it starts in housing, it then goes to tech, and after that it goes to manufacturing, and after that it goes to the service sectors, right? Uh, and that's under underway. Okay, so that's my preliminary comments before getting on to the main topic here that I want to talk about, and that's the long-term trends and uh, how they influence the current condition and the future, which I've already talked about. Okay, so um, let's step back and look at the the capitalist economy at historical juncture, because it is. It is at a juncture point. Uh, it, It is going to need to restructure once again. You see, when neoliberalism uh occurred in the late 70s, early 80s, that constituted a major restructuring of the capitalist economy uh, designed to put American capitalists back in the driver's seat. Uh, They were challenged significantly during the 70s uh, by uh, labor unions and social movements. They had to tame that at home. In other words, intensified class war at home, especially targeting the unions, breaking their power, their back which they did, and also uh, neoliberalism was about uh, restoring uh, U.S. capitalist hegemony over their foreign competitors. Uh, At the time, of course, the competitors were Japan and Europe, in particular, among the capitalists, uh, and um, the Soviet Union. Uh, among the non-capitalists. Uh, we know what happened to the Soviet Union by the end of uh, the 80s decade, uh, so they succeeded uh, in in that uh, objective. Um, but um, they also succeeded in restoring U.S. economic hegemony over uh, the, the Japanese uh, and the Europeans. There were two agreements in the 80s. One was called the Plaza Accord, uh, which tamed the uh, Uh, Japan, and the other was the Louvre Agreement, which tamed Europe. Okay, so that was the neoliberal restructuring. I've talked about that before. You can read uh, some articles uh, on my blog, jackrasmus.com, or read my book, uh, published in 2020, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, uh, which uh, discusses that whole uh, whole history and that whole trajectory. Uh, it's not the first time that U.S. capital has restructured itself. Uh, before that, it underwent a major restructuring right after World War II, which put uh, the U.S. at the top of the, the list here of uh, uh, capitalist empires. Uh, and uh, it restructured after World War I, which put the U.S. Uh, on the map as a co-equal uh, to uh, the British Empire. Uh and when I say restructuring, I mean fiscal policy restructuring, monetary central bank restructuring, uh, industrial policy going after unions and wages and benefits and so forth, um, and uh, external, uh, meaning the dollar becomes uh, 
uh, you know, the preeminent uh, trading currency and reserve currency and capital flows and so forth. Okay, I'm not going to do a, a, a repeat of what I've done uh, explaining the neoliberal restructuring, <clears throat> but the point uh, I'm, I'm – um, I'm making today is that uh, that restructuring ran its course. Uh, what happened with the 2008-10 financial global crash was uh, it brought to light the fact that <clears throat> that particular uh, form of restructuring and uh, policy mix associated with neoliberalism came to an end. Uh, well, not quite. You know, Obama tried to put it back together again, but Humpty Dumpty was pretty shattered. Uh, and uh, Trump came, <clears throat> and he tried to do the same, uh, but uh, it didn't work either. Uh, there are remnants of neoliberalism uh, still at play here, and the government's trying Biden again to resurrect it, uh, and at the same time to restore U.S. Uh, global hegemony over other capitalists uh, globally, targets uh, particularly uh, Russia and China, but also Europe. Uh, and um, to restore it, uh, you know, economically and, and geopolitically. Uh, but uh, what happened was uh, you got the COVID crash right on top of the financial asset crash uh, in 2008-10, which actually extended in Europe and China to 2015. Uh the the recovery from that financial crash never really fully re occurred. We had a decade of very slow growth, uh, during which uh, the central bank kept interest rates uh, historically low, near zero, in real terms negative, right? Uh, and that resulted in a massive debt buildup, um, not only by uh, households, but by capitalists and governments as, as well. So that decade of uh, 2010 to 19 uh, was characterized by slow real economic growth, <clears throat> debt levels rising. And uh, however, the problems with debt levels servicing, paying principal and interest were obviated as a result of central banks keeping interest rates at zero. In other words, financing that extra debt uh, was made easy by the central bank for a decade, keeping interest rates uh, near zero. Uh, during that time, because of that, uh, there was a shift in investing, well, an accelerating of the shift uh, that occurred under neoliberalism itself towards financial asset investing, stocks and bonds, derivatives, currencies, and so forth. More and more capitalists put their money into financial investing uh, than they did into real investing, although there was the latter going on in new sectors like tech and so forth. Uh, global trade wars began to erupt again, another sign of the, the weakening of neoliberalism uh, during this decade. Intercapitalist competition intensified. Uh, income and wealth inequality increased. Uh, financial fragility from overinvesting in debt uh, in financial markets uh, rose. Exploitation of the working class increased, uh, and that's why wages and benefit compression uh, was uh, uh, the uh, characteristic of the period, actually, the uh, way real wages fell. Uh, and fiscal and monetary policy became inefficient. In other words, um, 
in order to stimulate the economy, interest rates had to be lowered to dramatically low levels and kept there. And then it only got a partial stimulus. That was the slow growth of the real economy. Uh, And then the opposite uh, occurs as well. And we're seeing that now when the economy and inflation are are overheating, uh, then raising interest rates uh, is relatively inefficient, ineffective as well, unless they raise them very high. And that's going on now. Uh, As I've been saying in previous shows, uh, raising interest rates, which rose at a record pace here this past year, it's not going to flush out the majority of inflation. Uh, it will uh, eliminate some of the demand-side-driven inflation uh, by, by crushing uh, wage incomes uh, and business, small business investment. Uh, but it will not, cannot do anything. Uh, monetary policy, central bank, rate raising uh, does uh, very little. Uh, with regard to supply-side-driven inflation. That's a global problem uh, and a domestic uh, problem, monopolization. Uh, And uh, it's a geopolitical problem. As long as the U.S. uh, uh, empire uh, continues to be aggressive and and uh, running amok here, which it is, uh, it will continue... uh, to put pressure on uh, global supply chains and uh, commodity prices and uh, disrupting of uh, global goods and and money capital flows, which is what's going on. Uh, The U.S. is out to bifurcate the global economy. In other words, to put a uh, electronic uh, trade uh, iron curtain around Russia and to some extent around China with regard to tech, uh, uh, which won't work. Uh, And in in any event, um, this is uh, what's going on now geopolitically. You see, the empire is in trouble, and it's becoming more aggressive and more violent and will continue to become so. Uh, But that is a reflection of the the challenges and and the slow growth uh, of of the prior decade. This slow growth was uh, replaced, well, not replaced, but uh, overlaid upon it was the COVID crisis. Right. And uh, that whacked uh, the real economy uh, even further. Uh, And the government had to throw some uh, financing and funding uh, to uh, support people temporarily. It it does this in crises. You know, it it will throw some some goodies uh, to average households here to keep them afloat. Um, But then when that crisis is over, they they turn to austerity, which means just taking back what they they gave with their left hand. They take back with the right. That's what happened uh, during the the Great Recession. Uh, Obama spent $787 billion in the rescue, and then two years later agrees with the Republicans to take $1.5 trillion, twice the amount, back out of the economy by cutting spending in, in social programs, okay? They were supposed to cut defense spending, but they kicked that can down the road, and they never never did eventually. Okay, so the COVID crisis overlay on top of the slow recovery, inadequate slow recovery, and all those other trends, financialization, inequality, uh, debt levels, exploitation, inefficiency, fiscal monetary policy of the decade uh, following Uh, the Great Recession. Now, overlaid on top of the COVID uh, is this uh, geopolitical 
uh, offensive by the U.S. empire, uh, which is severely disrupting uh, uh, the global economy. And, and it's most of the reason why you have inflation going on. By the way, uh, you, you will see uh, uh, energy inflation uh, start rising again here this spring, uh, I predict. Uh, supply side energy commodities, you know, trade supply chains, whatever, is uh, well over half of, of the inflation that we have. So we in the U.S., we peaked at about 9% CPI, consumer price index, right? Uh, about 40% of that is, was demand-driven, reopening the economy. Uh, 60%, I estimate, is supply-driven, you know, supply chains, global supply chains, and, and uh, sanctions, and war, and uh, geopolitical uh, efforts by the United States. Uh, but as I said, uh, they can't do anything about these global supply problems. In fact, they're exacerbating these supply problems globally with their sanctions and war um, and bifurcating of the, the global economy. Okay, so you have these triple, a triple crisis here, slow growth coming out of 2010, overlaid with the the, the deep contraction because of COVID, and now overlaid with the inflation, uh, largely driven because of uh, sanctions and war. Uh, that's the picture of going into this uh, uh, crisis here of uh, the need to fundamentally restructure the global capitalist economy. Whether the U.S. can pull that off now uh, with even greater challenges from China and Russia uh, is quite different uh, than the neoliberal restructuring of the early 80s when the challenges were weaker capitalists like Europe and Japan. You could pull off a restructuring then. Or after World War II, when the rest of the world was uh, uh, on its economic knees, it was easy to restructure the U.S. global uh, capital hegemony uh, in, in 44 to 47 here uh, than it is today. It's going to be much more difficult for the capitalists, U.S. capitalists, the empire to restructure in its interests uh, once again, uh, because the neoliberal solution uh, is uh, fading. It's fading. Its contradictions are intensifying and um, they can't simply put Humpty Dumpty back on that wall. Uh, they've been trying since 2010, uh, but the COVID and the geopolitical uh, aggression and challenge uh, uh, makes it even more difficult uh, to restore neoliberalism. What will the new restructuring look like? Well, no one knows yet. Uh, we will see uh, how that works out. But very clearly, the first point of the trends here, historical trends, is that uh, one uh, neoliberalism has, uh, is in this last phase, and the global capitalism never fully recovered uh, from the uh, 2008, I would say, to 15, 2015, if you want to count Europe and, China, and Japan, uh, uh, recovery from the financial crash. And then, of course, we got the COVID crisis, as I mentioned, which has caused structural changes in the global economy supply chains, particularly transport and labor markets, um, these have all been disrupted and they haven't really uh, been understood, let alone uh, restored here uh, by the policy elites. Uh, in fact, uh, history will show that the uh, uh, policy elites uh, didn't do a very good job managing COVID and the crisis 
you know, we have five to 10 million dead, probably, uh, worldwide. The, the numbers we'll never know globally. And, of course, we don't know uh, the numbers since 2021 in the U.S. because um, Biden has pretty much shelved all the statistics gathering. So we don't know how bad it was this past year. Uh, and, of course, there's the deaths, massive deaths to come uh, in China as they've reopened. Um, and as as the, the COVID situation has intensified political divisions internally in, in these countries, you can see it in China, uh, but here in the U.S. as well, uh, the uh, uh, the trends of, uh, you know, the, the uh, society really splitting down the middle here uh, are intensified because of it. Uh, and you can see it, of course, in the surge in capital incomes versus wage incomes. And, of course, we saw that the massive stimulus to get out of fiscal monetary stimulus to get out of out of the covid crisis was even less efficient, less effective than the stimulus that was applied to get out of the Great Recession. I mean, think about it. Uh, the U.S. government spent three trillion dollars, Congress, three to four trillion dollars of uh, fiscal spending and support. You know, over a trillion dollars uh, given to small businesses alone in the PPP, Payroll Protection Program, uh, and and other businesses got, uh, you know, pretty much free money from, from the Federal Reserve during the crisis. So three to four trillion dollars by Congress, and then another five trillion dollars of Free money injected by the Federal Reserve, the central bank. So we're looking at eight, nine trillion dollars thrown into the economy in 2020, 2021. And what did we get out of that? Well, we got like a 5% growth in 21, which is just reopening the economy. And then for last year, according to the Federal Reserve, the growth was only one half of 1%. Eight trillion dollars gets you one half of 1% GDP growth. Think about that. Tell me that fiscal monetary policy is working after that. I mean, what is working is uh, the geopolitical empire, uh, you know, maneuvers are causing inflation on top of that. $8 trillion and only a half a percent. And the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell predicts that next, and most of the big banks as well, forecast that. For 2023, GDP will only increase by maybe another one-half of 1%. Actually, it's got to be a recession. You know, these guys don't predict recession. You know, for political reasons, they don't do that. Uh, But, uh, you know, one-half, 1% means a recession. The only question is, you know, how long and how moderate or not will this 2023 recession be? We we shall see it. None of the pundits really know. Uh, Okay, so... The point is, you get a 1% growth rate for two years, over two years, for $8 trillion. Think about that. And don't tell me that fiscal monetary policy tools, i.e. interest rates and spending and taxes, are broken. Don't tell me they're not broken. They are broken. And that portends darkly for going forward uh, in the next recession. Okay, so uh, that's a trend. The fiscal monetary policy tools are failing in late neoliberalism. 
failing in the sense of uh, stimulating and stabilizing the economy, the real economy, not failing in the sense of subsidizing capital incomes. Yes, they are. They're subsidizing capital incomes. That's why you get this runaway income and wealth inequality. You know, I mean, uh, the monetary policy of zero interest rates for so many years until they started raising last year, uh, it was just a massive subsidization of, uh, of corporate uh, incomes. And then, of course, the corporations then take that free money, and what do they do? They distribute it to their shareholders in the form of stock buybacks and dividend payouts. And as I said before, and it's worth repeating, how much have the Fortune 500 companies alone given their shareholders in buybacks and dividend payments since 2010? How much? Almost $15 trillion. Yes, $15 trillion funneled from the conduit of the corporation because of free money and massive tax cuts, both big windfalls for corporate America, and they just passed it on to their shareholders, $15 trillion. Well, no wonder you got income inequality and wealth inequality accelerating. Okay. Another trend long-term is this financialization of the capitalist economy that's accelerating in the 21st century. You know, we tend to look at technology accelerating. Well, behind it and related to it is the financialization. In other words, capitalists, instead of investing in making real goods and services, right, uh, that would create jobs for people uh, and wage income for people uh, that would, uh, you know, help to narrow the gap of income inequality. Uh, instead of that, uh, capitalists are investing more and more relative to total investment, total investment meaning asset, financial asset, and real good investment, uh, investing more and more in real assets. I mean, uh, financial assets, stocks and bonds, derivatives of all kind that we don't know because you can't see them. Uh, Forex, in other words, uh, currencies, you know, well, creating all these kind of financial instruments, you know, CLOs, CDOs, and all this stuff that they – there's so many of them, you know, no one can remember them all. Uh, and uh, shadow banks like private equity and hedge funds, investment banks, all these guys for the rich, you know, all this money that they've been funneled, they then funnel back into financial markets, drive the prices up uh, in financial markets, make even more of a, of a financial gain, and get even wealthier. Uh, financialization, and that's crowding out, I believe, uh, real asset investment. That doesn't mean there's not any real asset investment going on. You can see new investment in, in tech, uh, so forth, uh, and some other areas, but you don't see it in traditional uh, uh, areas, you know, infrastructure and so forth. That's why the government's trying to reboost it by giving subsidies in the Infrastructure Act uh, to the real economy to offset this trend towards financialization, which doesn't produce jobs and income for most of the people. It produces extra wealth for the few that invest in these financial markets. And that's a characteristic of 21st century capitalism, this, this shift towards 
relative shift towards financial asset investing, uh, which exacerbates in- income and wealth inequality numbers, right? Uh, but uh, makes the capitalists richer, and uh, that's an important trend. Another trend is the technological change acceleration. Uh, and, of course, that's more obvious. I'm not talking about devices, you know, uh, gadgets and playthings for consumers like iPhones. Uh, I'm talking about in the production process itself, right, to reduce uh, production costs. Uh, and it changes the relations of economic relations between workers uh, in production uh, with their capitalist uh, uh, owners, uh, the rise of what's called precariat work, in other words, people that don't have full-time permanent jobs, they have part-time temporary jobs, is a reflection of this technological change going on. Uh, the rise of the gig economy, right, uh, and the fact of what's now happening, deepening, rapidly accelerating, is the implementation of artificial intelligence solutions uh, into production. And... Uh, as uh, even the McKinsey Consultants firm has predicted, it will impact 30% of all occupations, either eliminating those occupations, right, or if not eliminating, reducing their hours dramatically. Technology is doing this. And, and it, you know, the pressure from that in terms of jobs and wages and incomes, you overlay that uh, that on the financialization going on in financial markets uh, and how the fiscal monetary tools now, uh, policy tools are being used to subsidize capital incomes, and you have this uh, massive trifecta of uh, uh, pressure on uh, wage incomes and uh, uh, positive subsidization of capital incomes going on. Oh, you may say, oh, artificial intelligence, oh, that's about talking robots. No, 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 no. Not about talking robots. Not even about manufacturing robots, right? This is about software replacing simple decision-making jobs and work. Maybe you've heard about the latest uh, iteration here of artificial intelligence called Chat GPT. And you may hear about that, Chat GPT. Well, OpenAI, uh, which is um, going to be owned by Microsoft, Microsoft just announced a $10 billion investment into OpenAI, which owns Chat GPT. What is Chat GPT? Oh, it's about eliminating uh, customer service. You remember years ago, uh, we used to call a company on the phone when we had a problem, and we said, oh, I got this thing. You talked to a real person who knew something, and they resolved it for you. you Oh, and then, of course, uh, we never got a real person on the phone. We had to get a person on a chat line on the company, online, right? And, uh, okay, you still had a real person, Uh, but now with chat GBT, that person's gone. What you get is a software robot uh, that answers, supposedly, all your questions. That's intelligent, can and understand uh, your voice, and not just recognize your voice, but understand what you're saying in simple language. And it speaks back to you in simple language, but it's not a real person, you see. Uh, this chat GPT is going to eliminate 
uh, all customer service jobs are virtually all customer service jobs are companies that implement chat GPT. That's why Microsoft, which had an investment interest in open AI that owns chat GPT, is now spending $10 billion to control, buy out chat GPT. At the same time, it's announcing over a billion dollars in layoffs of workers to help pay for its purchase of ChatGPT. Yeah. Uh, Okay. And so there's going to be an awful lot of uh, uh, customer service reps are going to lose their job. This is AI. ChatGPT is AI. And it's just one of many examples of applications coming out of artificial intelligence that are going to eliminate a lot of jobs. Uh, I mean, a lot of clerical jobs, you know, are not going to be needed. Uh, The machine, the software machine can do it. It will do it. Uh, And, uh, you know, how many of those part-time jobs are going to disappear as well? A lot of service sector jobs, particularly people working uh, in the back office, you know, accounting and all that, uh, is going to be eliminated. That's why McKinsey says 30%, 30% is going to, of occupations are going to be negatively impacted, either eliminated or their hours dramatically cut because of the technological change, the next generation technologies, you know, which are uh, uh, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, cloud computing, 5G, et cetera. Okay, uh, that's another major trend. Just to sum up, here, major trends, capitalism never fully recovered from the Great Recession. COVID crisis has structurally changed the global economy, is making it more prone to inflation, not going to go away. Traditional fiscal monetary policy tools are failing. Financialization of the global economy, U.S. economy, is deepening. Technological change, next-gen technologies like AI, are accelerating. Those are five major long-term trends. What are some of the other trends here? One, the exploitation of the working class is intensifying. Okay, uh, what do we mean by that? Uh, Well, they're extracting, businesses, management, corporations are extracting uh, more more production, more more wealth-producing capability from the working class and paying them less. You know, if you look at Marx, one of the more, more brilliant uh, parts of Marx's analysis, and I don't agree with it at all, but one of the more brilliant that still is relevant is his discussion of how exploitation occurs of, uh, of labor. Exploitation occurs uh, by lengthening the workday and not paying you any more. Uh, and it also uh, occurs by uh, intensifying how much you can produce in a work day and not paying you any more. Right? The first one he called absolute uh, exploitation and the other relative exploitation. Now, uh, in a recent article I wrote, uh, uh, which uh, I'm in the process of getting published about exploitation, uh, both traditional uh, and uh, the new technology-driven and other trends of exploitation. Uh, I laid out, uh, you know, how the workday is actually lengthening, getting longer, 
and at the same time how exploitation getting more out of the workers is intensifying as well. So these traditional ways of exploitation that Marx laid out uh, a long time ago uh, are still relevant today. And that's been going on as well. These traditional forms, lengthening the workday, intensifying productivity, generating uh, exploitation uh, are still with us very much. But that's not the whole picture anymore. You see, uh, capitalists have gotten very good at um, coming up with new ways to exploit workers even more. What are these new ways? And in this article, you know, it, it got published in Germany. You can't read German, I'm sure. But uh, uh, I'll try to post some of it uh, soon on my uh, on my blog as well. Uh, there's what's called secondary exploitation. You know, lengthening the workday, intensifying output, that's primary exploitation. Uh, but secondary means after the workers are paid their uh, compressed wages, because wages haven't really risen much except at the very top, after they're paid that, uh, capitalists have figured out a way of how, he, uh, of how to go after and extract even some of what they paid you and take it back. That's secondary exploitation. They don't ex just exploit you when you work it and paying you less for what you produce. Uh, but even after they pay you, they come in to take some of the payback. How do they do that? Wage theft is one way, and it's a chronic problem, a multi-billion dollar problem just in the U.S., uh, not paying you, you know, what the, your wage rate was and, uh, coming at you in other ways of taking some of that money back. Lots of forms, you're not paying you overtime, not paying you minimum wage. Look, you know, if, you, if you're a, a weight person in, uh, in a restaurant, you know what your pay is? $2.13 an hour, which hasn't changed in decades. Those people, you know, if you don't give them tips, they don't survive. $2.13 an hour. In 20, 25 years, the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised but once to seven to from five something to seven twenty-five. You know, this was like decades ago, and it hasn't increased ever since. And uh, there's all various kinds of ways. There've been books written about this. I, I include some examples in my article here on wage theft, pension theft. What is pension theft? Well, you know, instead of getting your, your nominal wage and your paycheck, uh, some of the money goes into pensions. Let's say you've got a union pension plan. Some of the money goes into the pension that could have gone to you in wages, but it goes into providing pension. Pensions are just deferred wages. You know, when you retire, you get those wages back. Uh, but pension theft has been a big problem for decades. Corporations know and figure out uh, how to steal money from the pension fund. I'm not going to get into all the details of that here, uh, but real pensions have, uh, have been in decline for some time, and uh, phony uh, 401k plans uh, and IRAs uh, have replaced them, uh, which eliminates the liability of the, of the corporation to make sure that you have a pension for life after you retire. Uh, that liability is gone with 401ks. It's all up to you, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, the amount that gets accumulated in 401ks is totally insufficient 
to retire. Okay, so pension theft is one. Uh, Social Security, that's another one. Uh, How uh, businesses and government uh, uh, take uh, the money that goes into your Social Security fund. uh, It's supposed to be for your retirement. Uh, uh, Credit. Credit is another one. Uh, what are, what is what are rising interest rates? Right, that's just a way for capitalists to claim a part of your future wages when they are paid to you. They get some of it back. That's a form of uh, of secondary exploitations and uh, benefits, uh, insurances, or, you know, health insurances and so forth. The shifting of the cost to you uh, uh, from the corporation. Right. Uh, That's a a form of wage theft as well. And, uh, you know, every time the government raises uh, the deductible and the monthly premium on uh, Medicare, uh, that's a way of taking it back from you as well. Okay, so uh, secondary exploitation on top of intensifying traditional exploitation is another trend of global capitalism. Right. In in under the neoliberal era and in the 21st century, it's intensifying, of course. Uh, right now, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, the two parties, the two wings of the one party uh, are negotiating behind the scenes uh, how much to take back from Social Security. You know, Social Security uh, created a four trillion dollar surplus between uh, uh 1986, when the payroll tax was risen, uh, uh, to, I think, about, well, when the Great Recession occurred. uh, And since then, they've been dipping into the Social Security Fund and uh, using that uh, and that surplus. So the surplus is is declining, almost gone now. Uh, And by the way, you know, they talk about, oh, Social Security is going to be insolvent by 2035. Uh, All you got to do is lift the cap on it the cap on the payroll tax, you see, after you make like 135000 or something like that, uh, you don't pay any Social Security. You're done. <laughs> yeah, the rich people uh, only pay part of their income to Social Security. Uh, but if you're making less than 135000 maybe it's 140 something now, $1,000, which is just about everybody, right? Uh, you pay all year long. Well, all you've got to do is lift that cap on the rich, and you'll have more Social Security surplus that you could lower the retirement age, not raise it to 70. You could lower it. Let's go back to the French, 62, right? 62 years, you start collecting full, full pension in France at 62, not partial, full. Okay. Uh, so exploitation intensifying is a trend of neoliberal late capitalism. Uh, another trend is the growing financial fragility in the system. Uh, what is fragility? Well, it's sort of the condition uh, that you are prime. Uh, that you are sensitive towards a financial instability. That's what we mean by fragility, right? When your fragility grows, you're more apt to have a financial crisis. Uh, And fragility has increased 
fragility is due to uh, the increasing debt occurring everywhere in government. Of course, the government is $31.5 trillion national debt now. By the way, to digress, that's the result of $15 trillion in tax cuts since 2001. Yeah, $15 trillion, most of which gone to corporations of the rich and investors and the 1%. $15 trillion in tax cuts since 2001. $7 trillion in war spending for the Middle East. That's $22 trillion of the $31.5 trillion. There's your deficit. You would have no discussion about debt limits. If you haven't given all this tax cuts and and war spending that's made war corporations even more profitable, right, and enabled, as I said before, Fortune 500 companies, among others, to simply turn around and take the, the zero interest rate, zero cost, and uh, uh, massive tax cuts, $4 trillion by Trump. Right, turn around and give it to the shareholders. To repeat what I said earlier, fifteen trillion there. I mean, these are numbers that tell you what's really going on. Right, fifteen trillion in tax cuts, seven trillion in war spending, fifteen, fourteen, fifteen trillion in distribution to shareholders in the form of stock buybacks and dividend payouts since two thousand ten. Well, no wonder you got income and wealth equality accelerating. At the same time, you had exploitation keeping wages down. Well, capitalism is working for the capitalists. Working as never before. And, you know, they will continue doing this until there's resistance. Uh, you know, it's like a labor uh, a union management negotiation. If you keep saying doing nothing while they keep squeezing you and taking more money from you, if you keep conceding in negotiations and bargaining, that's a signal to them that, well, they'll give up and more. Let's push them even further against the wall. The capitalists will push you to the wall until they see resistance. Then they will consider well, maybe we need to stop and slow down or maybe even you know, throw a few crumbs back. If you're not resisting, they keep pushing. They they figure out, well, hell, we can squeeze them some more. You know, they're, they're not doing anything about it. Well, let's try to squeeze them a little bit more. Let's squeeze them really here or there or whatever, you know. And that's what's going on in France, you know, the government. Because this goes on negotiations, goes on a social political level, not just on a labor management level in production. It's the same thing. This is the way these people think. Well, if you don't resist them, uh, you know, there's more that they can take from you. And when you stand up and resist them, then they start thinking, oh, well, maybe we ought to slow down or maybe throw a few crumbs back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so financial fragility is represented in this huge run-up in debt at all levels, not just the federal level. But I talked about the uh, uh, the central bank, the Federal Reserve level. That's nine trillion dollars on top of the thirty-one trillion. The Fed owes nine trillion dollars. Yeah, on top of the thirty-one trillion that Congress owes, and the states and local governments another six, seven trillion dollars. Well, I don't know. They got a lot of money from the government here that they're sitting on during COVID and using for other reasons. Uh, well, let's say five, six trillion dollars. 
that's the total debt. And globally, it's even greater. You know, other countries have risen, uh, raised their debt levels even more. And then you have corporations around the world that are uh, invested in dollar-denominated corporate bonds and debt, and the cost of which is going up as U.S. interest rates go up because, you know, the debt is in dollar form. Uh, so the debt has risen everywhere. But debt levels by themselves are not the key. It's the ability to service that debt. And that was principal and interest, pay the principal and interest. But when you're in a recession, you don't have the revenue to pay the principal and interest, right? The debt doesn't go away, but your ability to pay it goes away. So you need that to occur to have a financial crisis, right? And uh, when you got a recession, the fragility rises, not just because of the debt level rising, but the fragility from the lack of revenue and income. And that's true for government debt, for uh, individual household debt, and for corporate debt. Well, that's been rising. Intense. We are approaching another uh, financial uh, instability event. Uh, another trend is uh, U.S. imperialism running amok. Uh, it's become more aggressive, more violent. Uh, I believe the neocons really got their claws into the government and foreign policy under Bill Clinton when he couldn't keep his zipper closed, right? And he was being impeached. He gave uh, whatever anybody wanted uh, just to uh, survive. And then, of course, Bush and Cheney get in, and they solidify the neocon control over foreign policy. And then for 20 years, we're running amok here. Uh, neocons, adventures, wars, uh, without without end. And that's going on. Middle East wars for 20 years, not just Iraq, but Syria, Yemen, Iran, uh, Yugoslav wars with NATO, uh, in the 90s, right? NATO moves east after 1999. Uh, Russia attempts to destabilize Russia, first in Georgia in 2008, that failed, and then Ukraine 2014, that, that succeeded. Uh, wars in Africa, Libya, Somalia, right? Uh, plans to go to war with China over Taiwan. Uh, this is U.S. imperialism running amok. Uh, becoming uh, more aggressive, more violent uh, as it is challenged. Uh, I, I believe they've clearly decided, they meaning the elites, neocon elites, foreign policy, uh, they clearly decided to take on Russia and China before those two countries become even more influential. Uh, and, of course, uh, they're succeeding uh, geopolitically here uh, with, uh, you know, with, with the Ukraine war. Uh, I wrote an article, which I'm going to follow up at the end of the month. I wrote it last year, January, about 10 reasons why the U.S. may want Russia to invade Ukraine. Uh, and uh, the reasons uh, have resulted in big gains for the U.S. Uh, and uh, they want to continue this war, bottom line, because of the gains that they're seeing already. Okay, so uh, uh, U.S. imperialism, the global empire. Uh, some say it's weakening, it's in trouble. Uh, well, it's under greater challenge, but it is responding more aggressively and more violently. And, of course, that puts pressure on the U.S. Uh, domestic economy as more and more money shifts uh, into war and defense spending uh, as recession and growth lags 
here, and inflation rises. You see, that's the contradictions that are growing. Uh, but the capitalists will defend their global empire because there's huge profits there. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue to see a lot more in terms of war spending and wars here uh, as neoliberalism uh, begins to unravel. Uh, and uh, final trend that's important long-term uh, is the uh, as all these trends occur, we have rising uh, domestic political, social, and cultural divisions and instability. Uh, it's hard to see the links between these major economic political trends and the domestic instability and, uh, you know, uh, split down the, in the country, but uh, it's, it's, it can be shown, uh, the trends. Right. Uh, we got a rightward shift in the domestic movements, in the media, in the parties, even in government bureaucracies. Right. Uh, and we have Democrat, Democratic, small d, politics and political structure and political relations. Democratic, small d, political relations deteriorating in this country in particular, but you can see it in other countries as well. In Europe now, uh, the U.K. is a basket case. Uh, we see things erupting uh, on the continent in France, you know, with uh, uh, what's going on in, in in France and in Germany. Mass protests, governments are falling uh, as the uh, crises, which is worse in Europe. The crisis is more intense in Europe, the economic and political crises, uh, because the U.S. is... Uh, increasing its hegemony over Europe, driving Russia out of Europe and stepping in, charging the Europeans more. Uh, you know, more of our natural gas and oil will flow to Europe. That's why prices will continue to rise for energy in the U.S. here, uh, particularly for natural gas. Uh, the U.S. is now supplying and will supply uh, Europe for the natural gas. That's, by the way, you know, you, I believe you got this big movement going on now. They announce, oh, gas stoves, right? we got to get rid of our gas stoves here. Uh, or your gas furnaces, which is even more uh, profound here. Well, you know, they know there's going to be less supply of natural gas in the U.S. And, uh, you know, they want to get rid of it here in the U.S. so they can send it to Europe. Yeah, they want you to get rid of your gas heating, your gas uh, uh, heater, and your gas stove, right? Well, that's going to piss off a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, political instability rising. Uh, in the third world, you know, emerging markets, uh, political instability over the high rising cost of food, you know, and just essentials as a result of the bifurcating and restructuring of the global economy going on. Right. And the war and the sanctions, uh, food insecurity is going to cause a lot of instability and energy costs and security uh, in these emerging markets, uh, not just in, in, in the core in the U.S. and, and Europe, but uh, every, for different reasons, but everywhere around the world. OK, so uh, to quickly uh, uh, recap here, you know, the major trends um, that I've talked about uh, here, uh, one. You've got uh, slow growth, recovery. Capitalism never fully recovered from the crisis of 2010. The COVID crisis and structural changes in the economy got overlaid on top of this, right? Uh, technological, uh, traditional policy tools, fiscal monetary, are, are 
increasingly inefficient and failing. Financialization is continuing. Uh, technological change is accelerating. Uh, exploitation is intensifying. Uh, financial fragility is growing, leading to more likely financial instability events. U.S. imperialism is trying to establish its hegemony, is running amok, and domestic and political divisions and instability is rising. These are the trends that we are facing going forward. Okay, that's it. I'm out of time and I'm out of here.